Welcome to the Contemplative Science Podcast, brought to you by Monash University. This is the podcast for anyone interested in what lives on the overlap of cutting-edge science and ancient spiritual practices. From monks to neuroscientists, our expert guests join Dr. Mark Miller and Jamie Slevin to explain how contemplative practices work, and crucially, how they can help us improve our lives. Join us each week for Ancient Wisdom Made Practical. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Contemplative Science Podcast, and welcome to 2023. I hope you've had a great new year and got some much needed rest. Mark, how are you, mate? I'm very good, James. How are you? How are you this year? Yeah, this year's been okay, thank you. Good. (laughs) Today, we have the pleasure of talking to Ian Singer. Ian is a psychotherapist and experienced meditator. He's worked with thousands of clients and students over more than two decades, and he's practiced across the world. He's an expert in mindfulness-based skills development, and we're really pleased to have him on today. Ian, how are you? Happy to be here. Happy to be here with you guys. I've seen you say, and I've seen it written, start from where you are on a number of occasions. And I'm interested, where do people tend to start in a psychotherapy context when they begin looking at meditation as a potential solution to what they're dealing with? That's a great question. So I think people work back from where they want to be. So you're already saying, I want to be as I'm not right now, right? I want to be different in these ways. So as you track back from that, you don't track back to where you started from. You don't want to track back to where you started from because where you are now, you're either very frustrated with and or ashamed of. And so it's very hard to start from where you are. You want to come in and talk about yourself as the manager of this situation. Look, I know this loser. I know this person here who hasn't been succeeding, needs help. I've brought him here and you're going to help him. This is where we want to get him. And then he's like, yeah, yeah, this is where, or she's like, yeah, this is where I want to get to. So it's very hard to start where you are because you don't like it. It's kind of like bringing in a consultant. You're doing an audit, right? But as a third party on yourself. I think we've all had the experience of sharing parts of our lives, times in our life that we haven't felt good about. And when we do it, so often we do it once we're out of it, right? It's like, oh yeah, here's where I had all these struggles and I I really was lost or messed up. But you tell people about it when you're done. You know, now I'm this good guy. Now I'm the guy who sees more. And so, yeah, you come in as a consultant, even when you're there, because you want to be the person who can share with the meditation teacher or the therapist that you're on the better side of it. You have this awareness of yourself. Yeah. There's something really interesting there because you're talking about that as a beginning. It's sort of the opening gamut for this thing to work. But actually, that's one of the gifts that you get from long-term meditation as well, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You get this perspective of your own mind and body processes where you start to think. Sometimes you can think about yourself. Oh, the mind isn't well right now. And I feel sorry for you, mind, that you're belabored by these things. And oh, the body isn't well right now. And I'm sorry, body, that you're like this. So let's see what we can do. (laughs) me being non-identical with some of the mind processes and me being non-identical with some of the body processes saying, okay, well, look, you guys are under duress. Let's see what we can do. And that distance is actually one of the gifts of long-term contemplative training, I think. So I love to hear when the end shows up at the beginning. For some reason, that feels right to me. We're right off the bat. Let's start getting some like right view over who's in danger here and who needs help. Mm. Yeah, I guess, you know, before I'd ever learned anything about therapy and I was just doing my first retreats, which were Vipassana Sangoenka retreats, mm-hmm. you know, I think I could see what you just described there, Mark, play out in real time because it's as you develop yeah. each modicum of equanimity with your state, 
yeah. that more starts to come up and more starts to reveal itself from the inside because you can be with it, because you can see it as it is. And it gets stronger and stronger as you go. And so I think that the correlate there in therapy would be safety, you know, that you are developing a relationship mm-hmm. with someone you don't have to be the consultant with that therapist. He's not gonna judge the parts of you that are ashamed. And he is gonna, or she is gonna make you, help you feel safe there so that you can develop not this kind of disinterested distance, but this compassionate holding space where these things can come out. The interesting thing though, right, is if you start there and you're saying, well, listen, let's use the therapist as the third party and let's be the third party ourselves. Where does meditation enter the picture? Because so far we could describe like, jogging therapy, right? Where does meditation come in uniquely? Nice. Yeah. And obviously it doesn't have to come in uniquely. There's no reason meditation has to come in uniquely into therapy or into somebody's spiritual practices, especially if we're talking about specifically mindfulness. But I think as a therapist where I saw mindfulness begin to come in uniquely was, you know, a lot of us, we learn cognitive therapy to begin with at least, and some of us move on from that or some of us deepen it as therapists, but it's definitely something that is bread and butter to lots of therapists. And I found myself when I started working with clients, you know, the first thing you do is start to do these thought records and these journals where people will kind of catch their automatic or spontaneous thoughts and write them down. And then later on, you learn how to work with those thoughts and question them and and so on. But I found myself pausing in that first phase for more than I was trained to for longer periods of time, just having people writing down their thoughts. And it wasn't until I got training in mindfulness-based cognitive therapy that I realized why I was doing that is because this is mindfulness. So cognitive therapy begins with becoming mindful, self-aware of what is going on in your mind. So kind of third and fourth levels of satipatthana. So there is a, a level of mindfulness that you'll see infused through different kinds of therapy, whatever they are, because these are universal processes. Yeah. Yeah. It then sounds like there's two ways to cut the circuit, right? Mm. So if you do go down the cognitive therapy route, it's like you're mindful of the thoughts and then you're addressing the thoughts explicitly. But it sounds like in that first part, there's a bit of an opportunity to do well-being, and we'll get into what that means, just through the act of mindfulness. So it's not instrumental in as far as it's giving you awareness of thoughts to be dealt with, just to the awareness we're saying is beneficial. That's right. So that's where mindfulness-based cognitive therapy differs or takes a bit of a curve away from regular cognitive therapy. Regular cognitive therapy will get into the content of your thoughts and you'll begin to look, where's the distortions in these thoughts? How can I have alternative or better thoughts? But in mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, you're really just interested in the phenomenon of thought, the phenomenon of thinking, so that you notice, oh, this is thinking. And then you also might notice what happens along with these thoughts that I have this feeling come up in my body, this emotion come up in my mind or all through myself. And so you are no longer trying to change anything about it. You're just becoming aware and taking that step back. And you're into, at that point, more of a right effort kind of a practice. It's like, is this good for me? Is this helpful for me? Do I like it? Yeah, so they definitely seem like they fit together where one, you're actively working with content that's meaningful and important and impactful to work with. And then you're also doing this sort of meta training, which is you're learning about what it's like to have content. What is it like to be the kind of thing that has content? And is content actually vicious? Is there a potential refuge from all content, which makes it a little less vicious across the board? In your experience working with people, how 
how do you find the balance point between doing those two? Is there an obvious way or is that kind of a moment to moment decision, whether you should be working with content or just working with phenomenology and getting a better view of content? I wonder. I think what I'll usually look for, I mean, these are such interesting questions because I haven't necessarily always thought about it. It's just been intuitive. But I think yeah, what, nice. what I'll look for is where the blind spot is. So somebody will come in, let's say, if we do start with some cognitive therapy, which is a good way to put it, you put these things in columns. So here's the thoughts, here's these feelings, here's maybe what I felt in my body. And, and you line things up to see what thoughts went with what emotions, you know, this thought went with anxiety, this thought went with self-critical hatred or something like that. And then, you know, sometimes you'll have a thought and there'll be no emotion there. Or sometimes you'll have emotion, there'll be no feeling in the body. And so if you can move towards, what are you missing here? And the thing with the mindfulness stuff is, if you're teaching classes, what almost everybody is missing is the body. So that becomes key for people who are actually trying to work with mindfulness in this way, is letting go of stories and moving into the body. And then you get kind of this under the hood look at motivation, under the hood look at reaction. And really you're coming closest at that point to where the real appraisals are happening, even perceptually or, or cognitively, are things going my way? Your body is the barometer that is giving you constant feedback. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing how foolish we can be about those signals, you know, like the ignorance, how deep it runs. So, you know, people kill each other because they have uncomfortability in the body. You know, somebody's rude to you or somebody road rage. I mean, that's all being driven by, I feel uncomfortable. I feel I need to do something to remove that discomfort. But if you actually looked into the body, you'd realize it's very mild discomfort. I mean, it's not like you were in a car accident or anything. It's very mild discomfort. So we're hurting each other for a mild discomfort because we're overlooking the fact that it really is just a mild discomfort rather than something critical, which is what we're assuming it to be. It's wild that, that actually how much we can make that mistake. And most often we're hurting ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. There's an interesting thing here though, because I'll use an oversimplified example to try and get to the bottom of my thought. If you have PTSD because you were in a war and there was an explosion, and we're saying that broadly speaking, there's these two exercises. There's dealing with phenomenology. What is it like to be feeling these things? What is the nature of these things? And then you're dealing with the actual content of the charge, the content of the memory. If you only ever do the former, so you're only ever dealing with the type of phenomenology, can you expect those thoughts to just sort of keep on appearing inevitably? And as a natural consequence, without some of the dealing with the issues themselves, are you resigning yourself to these things just emerging inevitably? Yeah, it's, it's such a great question. Again, you guys are asking such great questions. Yeah, good. <laughs> I heard your summing up of the year or the podcast so far kind of thing. And it helped me understand the themes that, that you guys are interested in that keep coming through. So there's this waking up and growing up theme. Yeah. And so, yeah, you could meditate yeah. and just be with this phenomenology forever and you could get so good at it and you could get so peaceful. But yeah, then when you come home and visit your folks after the retreat and they push your buttons, you live in a world of content. <laughs> you navigate through a world of actual people, actual thoughts. And so the content is important. So it's not just a matter of becoming equanimous with whatever the phenomenon is. It is a matter of having to work through whether it's biographical content or philosophical, existential content, negative beliefs, all of these things, they really are important. Yeah, and like candidly, I got into meditation without realizing it as a reaction to my parents split up when I was a young teenager. Oh, I'm totally cool about it. Until, oh wait, like actually I'm trying to reconstruct the psychological safety. 
and the new ability to like deal with phenomenology was helpful, but it's been much better since I've actually just dealt with the issue. And I'm interested in the context of what you do, because clearly both are the silver bird with two wings. It's such a cliche. Well, you know what? Hold on. I got to jump in here though, Jamie, because I've known you for a long time too. I just want to like flag for the year, just since we're doing something candid here. You just said like, look, I, I started with practice. I tried to do it that way. But what I found really worked was actually working with the issues, like going to the content. But I just like to flag for you as like a good, as a good spiritual friend. In part, it was because you practiced, I think, that you were ready in order to deal with that content when it came around. No? Yeah. And in fairness, I think if I had gone in just with the symptomology, the symptomology was like headaches and right. anxiety. But the thing is about like body feedback is we're not brilliant at interpreting it. And it's only once you've had a little bit of practice of going, yeah, but what would resolve that headache or the body anxiety? Like this is actually all fine. So what is it? And it ends up being like, oh, I'm worried things are going to fall apart on some big picture, you're 14 kind of way. Very difficult to interpret. And that's Mark where I think I'd probably agree and say a practice gives a little bit more of a voice to the tummy, head, chest. And it's not just a sequence in terms of I did this and then I did that. I would more think of it as kind of like taking one step and then taking the next step. You know, sometimes we think of yeah. this term spiritual bypass as if it's like, oh, this is a wrong turn you can make in the path of contemplative work. And it's like in my life, I don't think of it like that. I think of it as something that is continually happening and that I am continually peeling off from so that there's always part of the function of what I'm doing is hoping that just by sitting there with my eyes shut that I can solve all the problems I'm going to have with my eyes open and then recognizing again and again, finding out where that limit is and how it's not true. And then that comes back into the practice itself. So maybe that's also part of the beginning, at least, of where mindfulness-based skills development came from. Yeah, and it's just a demonstration of why you need both. Because if you can't identify the cause of the phenomenology, what the content is, narrative, whatever else, it's very easy to think the solution is just spirituality. And when it's a little bit more domestic and it's like, oh no, this thing happened, you can start dealing with it. But as Mark points out, it's kind of difficult to give it a name until you've got a little bit quieter. And it's only kind of having done this pods, to be honest, that in my brain, like the bird with two wings has kind of become obvious. Get quiet to work out, then use the thing to deal with the phenomenology, all the meanwhile working directly. It's kind of nice. Yeah, and that bird with two wings metaphor, it's almost a flock of birds because you've got another bird that's about acceptance and change. You've got another one that's about wisdom and compassion. You've got another one that's about insight and tranquility. And so if you've ever got a bird with one wing, you know that you need to help it repair that other wing. Yeah. So I wonder a lot about what the most effective way to do things are, especially when it comes to psychology, human behavior. And I wonder if this is horses for courses, where there are some people it's like deal 100% with content and other people it's like deal 100% with phenomenology, or whether there's actually generally speaking a bell curve where like, no, 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 the effective thing is X. Do you have an opinion on that? Yeah, I guess I do, that there wouldn't be anybody that would be 100% content or anybody who'd be 100% phenomenology. Because if you're 100% content, I think that there's something that's happening that's beginning to reify the ego or the sense of self or the me at the center of it all. And if you're 100% phenomenology, then you're trying to leave that out and leave your biographical self out. And so it's got to have both in it. But of course, people will fall in different places along that spectrum. It's interesting because like I've had phases in both of these extremes, the like hippie dude who's like, brother, it's all about blah, blah, blah. You know, it's the phenomenology. 
and like the New York type A, I'm in therapy, like, but you have 26 minutes to make me feel better. They're kind of playing the same game, interestingly. They just like different ends of the stick. I've never had that thought before. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I guess a lot of times, like in politics or whatever, like the two ends of any extreme always end up back together in a room, however different they might look at that extreme. Yeah. Ian, I've got a question. Your professional work here with people sort of weaving these things together, has it impacted your personal practice? I mean, just hearing you speak about these things and hearing sort of your wise positioning, it just sounds like you're getting an opportunity in your, which is so great, you're getting an opportunity in your career to have this really powerful mirror back to how practice works in your own life. Is that true? Like, are you evolving all the time by the way you help other people evolve? I mean, maybe that's just obvious that that would be the case, but it's sort of striking me as rather profound that you get to do this as a career. It is profound and it is a privilege to just be doing it all day, really. So I guess how it affects my practice is kind of a sense of humility. You know, I think where I started off and doing SN Goenka retreats, it's kind of like he shoots the gun at the beginning of a race and you are trying to get to the final goal as quick as you can. That's where the emphasis is, is just focus on your breath, get that concentration, start moving through your body in this body scan way, dissolve your sense of your body, then your sense of self will follow, and then you will hit Nibbana, and then you will get out of samsara. Let's see how quick you can do it because you want to get there before you die. And that was very attractive to me, and it still is very attractive to me. But to realize when you try to get on that race and it's, oh, my shoes aren't tight. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, and I I can't run uphill. And, oh, I'm tired. And I don't know which way to go. I don't know which way to go, all of it, you know. And then, you know, so when you're sitting with people all day who are in their suffering and you are resonating empathically with their suffering, and that's not just phenomenological, you know, you're resonating because you know what they're talking about. You feel it in yourself. And then you can't sit down to meditate after that and think, oh, I'm on that race. I'm, you know, I'm going as fast as I can. You know that I'm dealing with what I'm dealing with now. And I think that relates to something that I heard you say, Mark, about working with the hindrances when you're working with jhanas, I think is what you were alluding to. And what that is, is, you know, in meditation, in Buddhism, sometimes they've separated out wisdom from deep states of tranquility. And there's one kind of practice or there's the other. There's an analytical or a holistic or whatever it is. But scholars like Venerable and Elio have, have gone back and shown that really to get into these deep states requires you to work with the hindrances, meaning the things that get in the way of peacefulness. And to work with those is developing your wisdom. So that is the practice. And it's not trying to get through them as quickly as possible, because that's ignoring the task associated with the first noble truth of suffering is that you need to understand your own suffering. So while you're not going to get caught up in all the stories and stuff when you sit down to meditate and make it into a therapeutic practice in that sense, you really do have to acknowledge and respect, this is what's going on with me now. I'm not a monk for one hour a day and a, a regular human being for, for the other 23. Though monks, of course, are also human beings, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Last week, a friend rang me quite upset because they've had a breakup like six weeks ago and the boyfriend texted to say, hey, let's ex- get a coffee and exchange our stuff. And I think we've all had the experience where like you have the first interaction after a breakup and immediately you're like, oh my God, are we going to get back together? Do Should we? And there was a lot of stress and anxiety around like the details. 
zooming out and going, God, you know something, regardless of the details of the text, which in this analogy is the actual content that the mind is producing, the relationship wasn't right. So yeah, I can see all the emotions go up and down, but like, I know big picture, we're not getting back together, this isn't good. And the emotional change upon seeing that was like night and day, because it was like, oh, I still feel anxious, but I have the second order calm. Like I'm not buying into the narrative of the anxiety matters. Mm -hmm. And that's a phenomenon I think we're all a little bit used to. It's like when you remind yourself during a sports game, you're actually fine either way. Or you're playing Monopoly and you're really, really into it. The doorbell rings and you go, oh, okay, I actually don't like, this isn't my life. My life is a bigger thing. You can just identify these mechanics all over. So maybe like a key word there that you used was the word you remind yourself. The word mindfulness comes from this word sati, which has this connotation of memory, of reminding yourself of something. And so that goes back to, you know, what you were asking me about at the very beginning in terms of intention. So you're going into a situation like that and you've got a multitude of intentions that come from different parts of yourself. Like, oh, I want my ex to see me in a certain way right now. So here's how I'm going to dress and here's how I'm going to present. But what's the intention behind that? Is it that I want them to see that I'm attractive or I want them to see that I'm okay? Do I want to get back? together with them. And so as you're asking these questions of yourself, what do I want? What is my intention? And you've got different parts of yourself that might even want different things. There's this one question at the bottom, like what is best for me, right? Like what is really truly healthy for me? Or even, you know, less selfishly, what is best for us? Are we better off together or apart? You know, is it best for her to see me as I'm okay? or that I am vulnerable and hurting and she meant all of this stuff to me, you know, and all of these things. So this right intention comes in and being able to know what your intentions are is so important to doing your best to not lead a chaotic life where each intention seems to cancel the other out in terms of how you behave. There's something there, right? Like we tend not to ever run the experiment of just turning up looking like shit and being really sad. We tend to not know how good people respond to that. Yeah. Like, I don't know what that would be like when I've been in that situation. I haven't turned yeah. up as much as I could help at looking yeah. like shit. I've tried to do my best. Oh yeah, I'm really cool thing. And you're met with the same, right? You're met with this icy thing and you go home and feel weird. I'm wondering now what happens if you turn up looking like shit and you're all upset and whether they go, oh my God, me too. And the whole thing just feels better. I don't know. It'll be an interesting world. And I mean, I think therapy is kind of this middle space, the therapy room. And it's one of the reasons I, I still really appreciate for people to actually come into the office and come into the space rather than continue doing it over Zoom like we were doing it during the pandemic is because you are in this kind of middle space where it's like, okay, I can be with another person and show them all my messiness and all my snot and all my tears and everything like that. But it's not totally real. It isn't my girlfriend or my business partner or my boss or whoever it is but you can practice. And then it becomes sometimes a halfway station on the way to doing that stuff in the world. Right, because the feedback of I was vulnerable and nothing bad right. happened, you kind of go, oh, that's an interesting data point. Let's do that 500 times and we might get it. And also just the feedback that it also felt really good. Yeah, and the relief, the relief of not having a mask on. Do you get a kick, kick's maybe the wrong term, but do you like the connection? Because the reason I like doing these podcasts is because I like feeling like, oh, the mask has kind of been taken off a little bit from me, from them. Is that one of the appeals? I think it's probably a main appeal personally. And it's also, I feel like I'm not so 
good in the world outside of that space in a way. Like, it's like, I always feel like I'm craving what's raw or what's real. I mean, maybe it's because I'm a therapist or something, but a lot of times, like on New Year's Eve, I was having a good time. I was dancing, but I also had like two or three people come and confess very deep things to me. And, you know, those are the parts of the night that I'm going to remember and kind of feel best about. So I guess I feel most at home there. Yeah. It makes me feel better. Yeah. That shouldn't be weird, I think. That should be very normal, right? You dance, but also you get a couple big confessions. I hope everybody has that in their lives. Seems like a very human thing to have people rely on you and you rely in turn. It's wonderful. Yeah, Ian, I have to say, like, my friends take the piss out of me for, like, you're at a house party and, like, the Google Docs come out on the phone because we're now structuring a message to the flatmate who you've been fighting with. It's just the best bit of the night. I often think, how do you get there more regularly? Because I'd like to be there more regularly, but 95% of the time, you kind of have to do the whatever the opposite is. Yeah. So, I mean, in psychedelics and the psychedelic work, they talk all about set and setting. If your set and setting is right, then it seems to just happen naturally. In other words, you're going out with an old friend for dinner and it's like, oh, well, I could invite this other person who we know or I could not invite them. And it's like, that's gonna make a big difference in terms of how deep the catching up gets. If you're in a group context and the group's purpose, so again, going to intention, has something to do with these mindfulness journeys or consciousness stuff or, or just in this podcast. And then you can be in these other set and settings and you know what you're supposed to do and that it's, it's not quite that and that it wouldn't be safe and that you're gonna get cut off or that's not the thing. And I guess the other part that creates a set and setting wherever you are is just being a good listener. I was going to say, right, like there's part of set and setting, which is you. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure it's something that's developed over a couple of decades of doing this. But we've just met today. But, you know, your energy brings out quite easily that from me, for example. And I'm wondering if just by having a little bit of space around you and the way you interact, people will find themselves a little quicker to be blah, blah, blah. Oh, you know? Yeah, I sometimes wonder that about like writers. Seems like good writers. And sometimes you'll even see movies where the main character is a writer and they seem to talk less and just kind of find a way of being there where other people get comfortable and then those other people start to reveal themselves. And so, yeah, I think just bringing the space with you, you're on the mindfulness edge there where then reality starts to reveal or unfold itself, right? I don't know if this was your experience or yours, Mark, but growing up, you have different friendship groups and like there's one group that's a little bit more laddie or bro-y, I guess is the transatlantic translation, because that's not really my thing. And a couple of those guys who I still see once a year, mm-hmm. I get like frustrated. I think, oh, you can be less like you were at school. And then it happens eventually and you go, oh my God, it's because you now have a nice girlfriend and your mates are all quite sweet and you've got enough feedback. And this is the bigger macro set and setting, yeah. you know, the expectations you've internalized is a form of set and setting. Yeah, and also just life beats us all up. But also like when we're younger, like you're talking about when you were 14, you know, your friends wouldn't have necessarily known what was going on with you. Like, I think we're able to just leave that stuff and and just kind of front something else. But as we get older and, and life does beat us up, it's harder to keep those fronts going. Or maybe someone like you will gravitate more to people who don't anyways. Thank goodness, right? Thank goodness one of the end results of getting beat up is that we can lower our guard. Yeah. It's like one of the best parts about getting beat up by life is that you eventually learn you can't do it all by yourself. You're going to need to rely on other people, which means you're going to have to be a kind of good person because <laughs> you have to be a kind of good person to get into those right network dynamics where people take care of you and you take care of them in turn. It's like one of the great gifts, isn't it, of this suffering that we go through here in this realm. We learn that we have to rely on each other. Yeah. So at the same time, I find myself like sometimes I do envy the laddie and the broy. It looks like fun. I think one nice thing about being a therapist, though, is that 
you meet the lads and the bros in this space and you realize like nobody's surface all the way down. Nobody. Everybody's got their depths. Everybody's going through their struggles. Yeah. I go watch lower league English football, which traditionally has a laddie thing. When I've done the away games, which means traveling halfway up the country, it's like 150 of you on a bus and the atmosphere is exactly what you'd expect. And it's always been such a relief to me that the ways in which they are laddie come through, the ways in which they're not come through, and the same point is revealed. Like everyone's got both. No one is surface all the way down. And perhaps one of the benefits of just having a little bit of space around you is you get to realize that. Yeah, and I think going back to the spiritual track or the mindfulness track there, it's like, I think people coming into some of these practices might think that, okay, I start here, this messy thing. And then what I get to here looks more or less like this together, quiet or very composed kind of version of myself, which will look more or less like these other people who are these highly developed spiritual people, as opposed to I will become more and more myself, whatever that is. You know, when you look at highly developed spiritual people, they're all so different from each other, not all so the same. But when you're meditating at the beginning, you're thinking, I'm just going to become this quiet, composed little Buddha statue or something. That's not what you're, you're going to turn into. Ian, before we finish up, what is the practical edge to this conversation, but more broadly, like the theme we've discussed, like if you're listening, what's the practical thing to go and do with your Monday, Tuesday or Wednesday? To me, I think, again, I I referenced earlier this program that I developed at the Center for Mindfulness Studies here in Toronto, Mindfulness-Based Skills Development. And I think, you know, one idea behind that was just to give people another place to go after they finish their first program because they lose their sense of community and group. And a lot of times they lose their practice. But the other thing was to recognize that mindfulness practice isn't these discrete set of skills that you are using just to calm your mind by being aware of your breath. It's like everything that you do from the moment you say, I'm walking to my meditation space, there's some skill that you are developing, right? From the moment you say, oh, I lost touch with the breath. Now I've got to come back to it. There is some skill you're developing. So to think about all the things you're doing within your spiritual practice or within your mindfulness practice as something that has to be a transferable skill into your life and then bringing it to bear, practicing it there so that these aren't kind of these two siloed places, that's where I think we get these problems later on. And one of the reasons why you said, yeah, it really is important to have therapy and contemplative practice, because you just have to keep building bridges between them. I think it's an awesome place to finish up. Ian, thank you so much, mate, for coming on. It's been really cool to chat through stuff that feels like increasingly front of mind. This was a lot of fun. A lot of fun to talk to you guys. This has been the Contemplative Science Podcast. That was Ian Singer. Happy 2023 again. And as always, we'll see you next week. So thank you for listening to the Contemplative Science Podcast. We're available on the podcast app of your choice, as well as on YouTube as a video podcast. If you're interested in exploring the rich landscape between science and contemplative practices, check out Monash University's Centre for Consciousness and Contemplative Studies. 